You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 203 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you live on this fine Thursday evening into Friday. As you're listening to this, uh, not a ton of news with regard to the Hawks, but I do want to get deep into the Paul Millsap player review. As you might expect, there's a lot of long-lasting implications there with Paul and his contract and things, so he gets his own podcast. There was, of course, an odd number of players, and as you may have noticed, I've been doing two per show, but Paul is always going to be the only one by himself. And We, we do have two more guys to get to, Mike Muscala and Dwight Howard, who will share a show at a later date, but I uh, wanted to get into Paul um, on Thursday evening, uh, partly because the All-NBA teams were announced earlier today. Uh, Paul did not make one of the All-NBA teams. Uh, he, did get, he did get three points of votes uh, with regard to the All-NBA teams. Uh, not a big surprise that he would at least get some consideration because you know he's one of the best you know eight or nine forwards in the NBA. Um, but the, the six guys that actually made it ahead of him, there's not really a whole lot of gripes. In fact, uh, most of the... Uh, most of the uh, action in terms of uh, you know complaints and things uh, go to uh, Paul George and Gordon Hayward not making the All NBA teams and the fact and the fact that that actually uh, has a, has a bit of an impact on their contracts both of those guys but uh, you know Millsap did get a little bit a little bit of consideration um, but didn't didn't make it not a big surprise there uh, and that's sort of the big headliner of the day aside from the fact that a couple you know there was a report from Brian Windhorst that I actually wrote about earlier today on PeachtreeHoops.com. Uh, Winhorst uh, shot a little bit of extra light on a previous report after the trade deadline. At, at the time, actually, we talked about that on the show uh, back in February, but there was a there was a rumor from both uh, Winhorst and Mark Stein, uh, formerly of ESPN, about the Hawks paying a potentially uh, be willing to pay up a, a considerable amount in terms of draft picks in a trade for either Jimmy Butler or Paul George. Um, Windhorst actually wrote in the midst of a Paul George piece on Thursday afternoon that the Hawks offered four, yes, four first-round draft picks for Paul George at the trade deadline last year. Uh, not a big surprise. Uh, the, the number that had been floated out there was three first-round picks, but four is obviously a huge ransom. It is worth noting, of course, that the Hawks uh, do have two picks owed to them moving forward. They have a 2018 uh, lottery-protected first-rounder from the Adrian Payne trade uh, via the Minnesota Minnesota Timberwolves, and they also have the 2019 top 10 protected pick that went in exchange for Kyle Korver in this year's Kyle Korver trade. So they do have a little bit of extra ammunition if they want to sort of put together an over-the-top offer in that way. But, you know, four picks, yeah, if we if we assume that, that two of them were those two picks, you still have to include two two of their own picks. And, you know, back back in February, it probably would have been the 2017 and 2019 or 2020 picks, something like that. Um, you know, it's a lot to pay, no question about it. And uh, something that I would definitely not do now, considering the fact that George only has one year on his contract and appears to be uh, more than willing to go to Los Angeles to join the Lakers at the end of that contract. So, uh, but at, at the time, I talked. To, I talked as if I really have no problem with the Hawks paying up uh, considerably in that way for a legitimate superstar in the way that both George and Butler would have been. You know, four is probably too much given just the lack of like, lack of control that they have. But you know, for Butler, for instance, with two more years on his contract and no you know defined way to go to uh, and sort of a defined opinion on a place to go like the way that George wants to go to the Lakers. I you know four picks is a lot, but if you can do four picks and nothing else, but cat filler. Like for instance, if you only do four picks and hold on to your Torian Princes and your 
DeAndre Bembrys and your Dennis Schroeders. That's not that's not that crazy for Jimmy Butler. Uh, but for Paul George, one year left on his contract, that wouldn't be a good thing to happen now. And it was sort of a sort of it sort of is it's, it's an easy it's an easy headline just because obviously four picks is just a crazy amount of ammunition. But if you protected them well, there'd be uh, a way for that to actually be probably worth it. But uh, there you go. That actually uh, you know word broke there, and it was sort of just a confirmation, but a little bit more detailed than we had before. Uh, last thing before we get to Paul Millsap, um, Dennis Schroeder took to Twitter on Thursday to uh, actually reveal that Mike Budenholzer is in Germany visiting him. They had, he said they had a nice dinner and talked about a lot of things, was the quote from Dennis on his own Twitter feed. Uh, not a big surprise. They would have had a, a sort of a postseason meeting, but, but it uh, sort of alluded to that during his exit interview that uh, he would he kind of talks to all of the players after the season and sort of in time. Uh, this is obviously a little bit you know after the season, and Bud traveling to Germany is sort of a headliner. But listen, Dennis is, a, at this point in time, one of the core players of the team whether you believe that's a good thing or not necessarily. There's been a lot of movement um, on Twitter and a couple people that I trust that I think that it should be a prime trade piece. I'm not sure I'm all, all the way there yet, although you know everybody should be available for the right price. But uh, clearly, we, you know, if Bud's willing to fly uh, across the pond to visit, to visit Dennis on his own turf in Germany, that probably is not the greatest indication that Dennis is going to be going anywhere anytime soon. But there you go. Uh, that sort of does it for the news, and now we can move on to Paul Millsap, who is, of course, the best player on the Atlanta Hawks roster um, for at least last year, if not beyond that, because uh, I think by the end of their tenure, Millsap was probably better than Al Horford as well, um, and obviously this year for the entire full season, he was easily the best player on the Hawks roster. Um, in terms of just numbers, big picture stuff, uh, the Hawks had a, had a plus 2.0 net rating with Paul on the court in 2,343 total minutes. He played 69 games this season. Uh, as you might remember by me saying it over and over and over again on this podcast, the Hawks were outscored for the season. They had a negative point, negative point differential, but so to have a positive one like Paul is, is definitely noteworthy. Uh, the Hawks were actually three and ten in the games that Millsap missed this season, including that sort of famous stretch down, you know, down the stretch of the season in which the Hawks basically just could not get a win without Millsap for a while there, and it almost cost him to miss the playoffs, uh, just given the timing and uh, the ugly timing of that injury from Paul. Uh, he had the best offensive rating at 105 and the best defensive rating at 103 of anyone in the starting lineup. Obviously, there were some guys on, off the bench who had better offensive numbers, like uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. is one that had a better offensive rating, and uh, defensive rating guys like Torian Prince had better defensive ratings. But in terms of, just the, of the guys who played the most minutes on the team, Paul was the best on both ends. Not a big surprise there, just because, obviously, he is the best player and the only guy on the team that could make a serious claim of being more than, you know, I, you know, I, I would say that Paul is a, a top 20 player pretty solidly in the NBA over the last couple of years. Uh, aside from that, I'm not sure the Hawks have, have, another, have another top 50 player on the roster. Uh, you, could, you could argue that at times Dwight was playing at, at sort of at that level, especially early on in the season. And uh, but aside from that, you know Dennis Schroeder, not really that, not really there yet. Um, without without having a firm ranking of players, it would be a pretty big surprise to me if someone wanted to tell me that Dennis or Dwight was in the top 50 players in the NBA and only have one guy uh, inside the top 50. It's pretty impressive to me able to make the playoffs with that kind of roster, even in, even in the Eastern Conference. So, shots to Paul up there. Uh, offensively, as we kind of break this break this thing down a little bit further, uh, he actually slipped pretty considerably offensively this year in terms of uh, when compared to the last couple of seasons in terms of efficiency. Uh, Paul posted a uh, career low in effective field goal percentage at 48% and a career low in true shooting percentage at 54%. Uh, neither of those are awful by any stretch of the imagination, but you can see it in his numbers, you know, 44% from the field, 31% from three uh, this season, a uh, sort of a, I guess a little bit better than average, actually a, almost almost a career high, a second to career high in free throw percentage at 76.8%. 
is a good thing, no question about that. But uh, you know, you could definitely see the downturn in efficiency there from Paul. He also has the lowest PER since 2009-2010 when he was in Utah. So um, not a great season in terms of offense from Paul. He still, uh, I would argue, is easily the best offensive player on the team. Um, but you know, considering that he did take a step back, it is worth noting and like sort of leading with that here, just because. For all the praise that I heaped on Paul, he wasn't quite as effective offensively as you might expect him to be. Uh, he, he, he attempted the most field goals and the most threes per game of his, of his entire career. Uh, also averaged the most points of his career. So if you look at his raw numbers like that, you might not see the downturn. He averaged 18.1 points per game. But he was forced to carry what I would, I would, I would describe as a huge workload. Uh, the two biggest workloads on the team offensively definitely were Paul and Dennis Schroeder. Uh, and I think some of that probably negatively affected them both. Uh, in the absence of spacing and ball movement, there was a lot of extra creation responsibility uh, put on Paul. And uh, while, for all the things that he's fantastic at, he's not the best one-on-one scorer necessarily in the league or the best like sort of go-to number one option offensively in the league. He does he, 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 did, he, did, he did do a very good job at that sometimes during the season. You can definitely see when he's, when he's cooking and the playoffs, he kind of lit up Markeith Morris a lot. At times, Jason Smith was uh, no match in the playoffs, for instance, on a small sample. But I think you want Paul to uh, probably be your not your number one offensive option, uh, more of a more of a secondary guy necessarily. But with the way the Hawks constructed the roster this year. He was clearly that number one option, and I think some of the downturn in efficiency was a result of that. He also had a career-low rebounding rate at 12.5%. Uh, some of that is definitely Dwight next to him, because Dwight is obviously a good rebounder. There's no question about that. That's Dwight's biggest strength, I would argue, at this point in his career. But also makes sense a little bit that Paul's rebounding numbers would go down, given his age. That's one of the first things that you can definitely tell when a guy's starting to lose a little bit of a step. Uh, athletically, as the rebounding rate is going to go down. Uh, Paul was, of course, 32 years old now. He turned 32 in February, which uh, plays into a lot of decision making moving forward. But the rebound rate did go down. That's worth noting, and uh, you know some of that's definitely Dwight, but not all of it. I would say because because Paul, that's kind of that, we're at that time where his, his decline should be happening in some of the peripheral athletic stats, and that's definitely one of those. Uh, on the bright side, though, before we move, before we move to defense, uh, on the offensive end of the floor, he had a career-best assist rate, uh, definitely a higher playmaking workload, as we talked about a second ago, but uh, an encouraging thing there. Also lowered his turnover rate, so if you raise your assist rate and lower your turnover rate, that's definitely a good thing always. And he had a three-year high in usage rate. Um, that's not necessarily a great thing, just because of what I talked about a second ago with all the uh, things that he was asked to do offensively, but in the same breath, he, he was able to manage that relatively well. Uh, moving on to the defensive end of the floor, uh, for me, Paul's one of the 10 best defensive players in the NBA. It would be a pretty big surprise to me if he was not in, in heavy consideration for an all-defensive de- all team. He, of course, made one last year uh, on a recent podcast from Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue, who I talked about often on the show. They uh, they had, uh, I believe, at least at least at least Nate did. I'm not, I'm not sure if both of them did, but I, I know Nate did. Had Paul on his second team, all-NBA all defense. That's definitely appropriate. He's one of the 10 best defenders in the league. He's fantastic on the end of the floor, even if he's uh, somehow still underrated um, as a result of just sort of his anonymous personality and things like that. Uh, he's very, very good defensively. He was tremendous all season long on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, should be noted though that his block and steal numbers were definitely down from last year. Uh, he was one of like the five or six people in NBA history to post his steal and com- his combined steal and block numbers from last year. So that probably was never going to be sustainable. But uh, you know, sort of historic season last year. Both of those declined this year, but still very very solid, especially for a player at his age and playing his position. Uh, he was 13th in ESPN's uh, real plus minus overall and 15th in defense. But you know, some of those defensive guys ahead of him were one pl- one way players. You know, Andrew Bogut is one. Dwayne Dedman is another. Like some some small role guys. If you look at just the guys who play full time minutes, um, Millsaps in in the top ten, and that's not a big surprise. Again, he's a very very good defensive player. 
Um, I would agree with the fact that I think he'd probably be a second team all defense guy. You know, Kawhi Leonard is pretty much the obvious guy at one of the forward spots, and uh, Dre and Draymond Green. Those two guys are pretty clearly uh, one and two in terms of forwards. But you know, Paul might be number three in terms of forwards. To be honest with you, with what they do voting on, on, on all defense, and I think he would definitely deserve that. He finished 13th in defensive win shares. Uh, he actually led the league in that category last season, which is remarkable. I think some of that decline is just because of the block and steal numbers going down. But I didn't really see much in the way of defensive slippage from Paul. He was asked to do some crazy things. Obviously had to do a little bit more in terms of being more mobile because of the fact that Dwight was immobile and a lot of the issues with, you know, you had a cephalosha injury. I kept baseball playing sort of out of position at times. You also had Tim Hardaway Jr. playing more minutes and uh, obviously not a great defensive player there. So uh, even Dennis Schroeder playing bad defense uh, at, a lot of, at a lot of time during the season, especially when compared to Jeff Teague from last year, who was never spectacular, but certainly more solid than what we saw from Dennis for a lot of this year. So you had Paul sort of having to play cover-up a lot, and he was fantastic in doing that, but uh, not a ton of slippage, in my opinion, on the defensive end of the floor. He's still tremendous. Uh, finally, Basketball Reference had Millsap playing about 9% of his minutes this season at center in the regular season. Uh, that number went up in the playoffs for sure. Um, and actually seems like he probably would have been a little bit higher than that in the regular season too. I'd be interested to note, uh, you know, that's that's a stat that's uh, definitely subjective. So I'd be interested to know if they, uh, when he was playing with Ursula Ursan Eliasova, if, if all those lamps were uh, credited with Millsap playing center, because uh, if those two guys were playing together, Millsap's definitely the center in my mind, but uh, you know, sort of nitpicking there. But he, he did play his most center of his career, and that's probably going to be something that he's going to have to having to do a lot more moving forward, especially if he gets paid in Atlanta, which we'll talk about here in a second. Uh, Millsap's just going to lose some quickness. He's still going to be very, very smart. He's a brilliant positional defender. His hands are fantastic. He's great at getting, the, great at getting his hands on the ball, but he'll definitely be asked to play more small ball center moving forward with just the way the NBA is moving as well as the fact that his skills that his skills are probably going to diminish in terms of just burst and, and speed and other things like that. He probably will not be able to uh, hold up against smaller guys in the way that he is now, but he'll be able to play up a little bit more because he is a very, very you know big physical guy who can play up and guard centers a lot of the time, and we'll see how that transforms in the years to come, especially if he uh, ends up staying around. And uh, with all that said, it's going to be kind of all we talk about in terms of his actual play. So before I get into the contract stuff, I want to say this out loud because I'll say it again. I've been saying it all season long. Paul is awesome. I'm a huge fan. I think he remains incredibly underrated uh, nationally. Uh, I think he's a top 20 player. And I think if you polled most you know casual NBA fans nationally, they would not come up with Millsap as one of their top 20 guys. But for me, he's probably closer to 15 than he is to 25. Um, he's uh, he's very, very good uh, in terms of being a, uh, a basketball player right now. You know, Moving forward, some of the stuff's going to be kind of critical in terms of the way I break, the, break down the contract and the free agency. But on the floor right now, especially the last two years when he's been just sort of this guy that we've now seen in his uh, – sort of a late prime into his, into his early 30s, but uh, Paul's been fantastic, and I think he definitely, definitely deserves a ton of credit for what he's been able to do. We saw it this year when he left the floor. The Hawks were just much, much worse, and uh, in the games that he missed full games of, you know, the Hawks were basically hopeless. I think I'm convinced that if the Hawks had traded him at the deadline this year, they would have missed the playoffs and probably done so pretty comfortably. They ended up making it by two games. I think uh, for sure they would have lost you know four or five, if not more games down the stretch, and you know some of that included, some of the swoon down the stretch included him not, not not playing, so that's worth noting. But this team would have probably been somewhere in the neighborhood of a you know 25 to 31 team this year without Paul Mosap on it. He's that good and uh, should be credited as such. With all that said, though, uh, plenty of, plenty of contract stuff to get into, uh, and we'll do that here. Even though we've done a little bit, I want to just do it all here in one place. Um, Paul. 
as I have, by the way, this is not just a Paul part of the breakdowns. If you've not heard all the player reviews, I've done contract stuff on all of them. So this is not just pointing out on Paul. I've talked about it. Obviously, this is the most interesting one of them all because of just the sheer numbers. But I have, if you've not listened to those, please go back and do that. But I've broken down the cap holes and things for guys who are free agents, etc. So not picking on Paul here. So there's all that, there's all that to say before I get into it. Um, Paul's player option for $21.4 million. Uh, he's already said that he's going to probably decline that. I think it's uh, basically been a certainty throughout the season unless he got injured. And he, obviously, Paul is healthy now. So barring some sort of freak accident between now and the uh, time where he has to opt in or out of that, I think he's going to opt out. There's no reason for him to opt in. He's absolutely going to get more than that and for a long time. So he should opt out. That's never really been uh, part of the debate. But worth noting, though, that he still has that option, has not formally declined it at this moment. Um, he has a cap hold of north of $30 million, almost $31 million. Um, if he were to decline the option, that's what the cap hold uh, suddenly um, manifests itself, which is not a big surprise. And he's going to get more than that, I would imagine, unless he just takes a discount. But I think he's going to get more than that on an annual basis as well. His max contract, which is sort of the famous thing, uh, it'll be getting more than $35 million in year one in 2017-2018 uh, next year. And it could total, if he got a full five-year max contract, north of 205 million dollars over five years uh, that, that would include a 45 million dollar salary or so in the final year in 2021-22 and uh, pretty obviously he'll be very very old by then uh, Paul will be turning 37 years old in the final in the final year of what of what, what, of what would be a five-year contract so uh, just know that in the back of your head if he gets a five-year deal from the Hawks the very very end of that is going to be bad there's almost no way around it uh, most guys at 37 years old are out of the league if they're not out of the league they're definitely just sort of holding on as bit players and uh, if you if you were to give him the max contract uh, about 45 million in that last year so kind of just do the math there on your own uh, and sort of just think about how that might uh, not work out very well uh, if he gets a four-year max elsewhere, or if the Hawks were to sign him to a four-year max deal, is a little bit different. But if he gets the four-year max elsewhere, it would have the same starting salary, about $35 million, but smaller raises uh, as mandated by the NBA's uh, collective bargaining agreement. And uh, his only his, his four-year max would be somewhere around the, uh, around $150 million. Um, that's obviously a lot of money as well. Uh, we saw Al Horford take the four-year max from uh, Boston last year for a lot less money than Paul will get. And, you know, part of that, without getting too deep into the weeds here on the CBA, is that Paul uh, has more experience than Al in terms of being in the league, so he gets the higher number, and obviously the cap is a little bit higher as well. So Paul, uh, sorry, sorry, Al got about four years, about 115 million somewhere around there, and Millsap would be north of 150 um, just one year later. So uh, bad timing if you're a Hawks fan that wants to keep him, but there it is. Um, just so, so with, with all that out of the way, obviously the contract itself, if you were to get a max contract or anything close to that, it's going to be a bad ending to the deal, even, even if Paul is worth every penny in year one, and he probably would be if he could just replicate this year, because um, for as much as that sounds like a lot of money, $35 million, if you got exactly what he made, what, what, if you got exactly out of Paul what he did this year, in terms of just on the court value, he, he would be worth that. Um, but uh, aside from that, it's kind of tough to look beyond that and talk about him being worth the contract that he would potentially be offered. Um, for some uh, overall sort of impact um, stuff, uh, I talked to at uh, ATL Hawks Fanatic on Twitter, who does some great work for us at PeachtreeHoops.com. He's a fantastic follow and is a fantastic writer for us as a salary cap CBA expert. So check him out on Twitter if you have not already. He's also wrote a fantastic primer for the Hawks uh, offseason on PeachtreeHoops.com. I, I think it's pinned, but if it's not, you can search for it and find it. He uh, does great cap work, and all these numbers are pretty much uh, from him and with a little bit of sprinkling of basketball insiders. So but without further ado, 
Um, the Hawks already have $62.3 million on the salary cap if you just include the guys who absolutely have contracts for next season. Um, those guys are Dwight Howard, Kent Bazemore, Malcolm Delaney, Torian Prince, DeAndre Bembry, and Dennis Schroeder. Um, so just for instance, that, that does not include any cap holds for Paul Millsap, Tim Hardaway Jr., Mike Muscala, Mike Dunleavy, or Ursula Mesova, um, etc., um, if you if you were to add the thirty million dollars from Millsap alone, you'd be at ninety two million dollars. And for, just for as a refresher, that thirty million dollar cap hold, um, if the Hawks want to go over the cap or want to have the right to sign Millsap with bird rights, they have to keep the cap hold on their books. They cannot just uh, relinquish that. They have to use it in order to go over the cap and to have all the full board rights, which they definitely want want to have with Paul. So if you factor that in, they're already at ninety two million dollars with just those guys and Paul Millsap. On a on a 102 million dollar salary cap. So just just so you know, with those with the, with with only those guys, that's about seven players for uh, for 92 million out of 102 million dollar salary cap. That is not that does not account for anything in terms of a first round pick or anything else. Um, a couple of guys that you probably would that the Hawks want to prioritize potentially are Tim Hardaway Jr. and Mike Muscala. Those are the two obvious names that the Hawks could try to sign. Uh, Muscala's cap hole is very very helpful. Only only 1.47 million dollars for Mike um, the off, in this offseason because he's he just made so little throughout his career. That's a that's a huge boon for the Hawks for a guy who's going to make at least five million dollars a year. I would imagine somewhere else if he wants to leave. Uh, Tim Hardaway Jr.'s cap hold is only 5.7 million dollars. That's actually a little bit higher than it was supposed to be because he played a lot of minutes. He crossed the playing time threshold, which raised that up. Uh, and again, without, without getting too deep into the weeds here, that's his, his cap hold is about $5.7 million. He'll have a qualifying offer of about $4.6 million that the Hawks uh, cannot offer until after the finals, which they will almost certainly do. Um, there's no reason for them not to do that. If, if they do not offer the qualifying offer, then he'll be a free agent. He'll be unrestricted. If they do offer the qualifying offer, Tim will turn it down almost certainly, and then he'll become a restricted free agent with a $5.7 million cap hold. Um, elsewhere, you know, guys like Tabo Cephalosha and Ursula Namisova have larger cap holds that are probably going to be coming off the books in a hurry and without getting too deep into the weeds there either. Um, the moral of the story, though, is that if they sign Paul Millsap, they will not have you any useful cap space to do anything else uh, unless they were to move off of somebody else like a, like a Kent Bazemore or a Dwight Howard. If they were to sign Paul Millsap and Tim Hardaway Jr., they would have absolutely no cap space. And if obviously if you throw Mescal in there as well, that would not do much to them for them. They will, they will zoom past the cap in a hurry and approach the tax. Uh, the luxury tax, if you're not familiar, is the point in which you are. That's, that's about $20 million over the cap. It's about $122 million projected for next year. If the Hawks were to zoom past that, every dollar is then penalized um, by a multiplier. So uh, if you're talking about, basically, you want to avoid that at all costs unless you're going to be a top flight team comp competing for a title because it really hurts your uh, owner in the wallet if you uh, surpass the luxury tax. And also, if you are if you are are a sort of sort of quote unquote a repeat offender of that moving forward, it can really start to hamper you in terms of the way that you can operate your books. All that to say, this is the interesting scenario and one that I posed to a couple of people offline. So if you if you heard nothing else so far, start here. I'll try to break it down as slowly as I possibly can here. But uh, if we assume this scenario, if we assume that Paul Millsap signs for the max, at least in year one. Um, that's about $35 million per year. Uh, if we assume that Tim Hardaway Jr. gets about $10 million per year, which I think is probably what he's going to get, he could get a little bit less than that if he agrees to stay and so take sort of a discount, but I think he's going to get somewhere in that neighborhood. And Mike Muscala gets $5 million, which is probably less than I think he's going to get, but I'm trying to use round numbers here. Those three guys would be about $50 million. If you add those three guys to the uh, people that are already on the roster, you're at about $112 million with only nine players out of 15. The tax line is, again, $122 million. 
Then you have to add the salary cap hold for the first round draft pick. Alex had the 19th pick. It's about it's about 1.9 million dollars. And also, Mike Dunleavy Jr. is guaranteed 1.6 million dollars next season. Um, Dunleavy could be cut. Uh, his full salary is about six million actually. And I assume the Hawks will not be willing to pay that. Um, if they are, then they are. But if they were to cut him, they can get down to $1.6 million, and that's the guaranteed portion. So if you add just those things in, you're at only 10 players, and that includes a first-round pick, um, and that includes cutting Dunleavy. Because, so you have, you, have a, you have 11 salaries, but only 10 players. If you do all of that, your salary for next season will be $115.5 million, and the tax threshold is, again, at $122 million. So you still you still would have to sign five players with less than seven million dollars of room to avoid the luxury tax. All that to say, signing Paul Millsap, Tim Hardaway Jr., and Mike Muscala to reasonable contracts basically ends anything else you want to do and threatens to put you into the luxury tax. Uh, this team does not have any business going into the luxury tax because they're going to probably be if they you know that scenario is basically just bringing the band back from this year on the upside. It might be a 45-1 team. We saw it this year. They won 43 games, but they actually had a point differential of a below 500 team. Uh, you could project some some growth from guys like Torian Prince and Dennis Schroeder and even DeAndre Bembry um, in the same breath. I think you probably uh, project some decline from Dwight Howard and. Paul Millsap, frankly, um, given their extra age. So it, it, with all that shaking out, maybe you could get to 45, 46 wins on the absolute up on the absolute uptick, and uh, you can't imagine paying the tax for a team like that. So that's the argument for bringing the band back together, or bring, I guess the argument against it is that you, if you just do that and nothing else, you have very, very little money and no way to, no way to really improve because um, you know the way that even when I broke that down there, and I know it's a lot of numbers, so it's tough on a, on a podcast, but in the end, uh, that would be a very skeleton crew. You're talking about a team with no backup power forward, uh, no extra shooting unless you picked it up in, in the uh, in, in the draft, and even then in the draft, you're talking about a rookie who, probably, who, may, who may not be playable because we saw you know DeAndre Bembry is a very similar spot. Uh, he was uh, seen as a very you know, sort of a closer to NBA ready guy at number 21, and basically didn't play at all this year. He played a little bit in the rotation when there was massive injuries, but aside from that, he was you know probably the 12th, 13th guy for most of the season. So that's kind of what you expect from a lot of rookies. Maybe you have uh, maybe you strike goal with a guy like Malcolm Brogdon this year in Milwaukee. Maybe if you will go out and get like Luke Kennard or something like that, he might be able to play for you and fill a role for you. But in the same breath, I can't imagine that guy making a huge impact. So all that to say, it is very, very perilous if you want to sign everybody because you really can't improve the roster unless you are able to you know, sort of pull off a trade or just be able to dump Dwight Howard and use that money elsewhere or Kent Bazemore, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, going back to Paul Millsap, that's sort of what you're dealing with when you're trying to pay him a large sum of money. Um, you know, on on the flip side, if Paul sort of bails you out, if you're if you're a rebuild guy like I am, uh, if you if Paul bails you out and walks away and signs somewhere else, the Hawks would have about forty million dollars in cap space. So that, but that, that also obviously does not include Tomorrow Junior, Mike Muscala. Um, moreover, it's probably going to be a less manageable number. Uh, I can't imagine a scenario in which the Hawks could actually improve next season if Millsap were to walk away. Um, that's sort of the downside here because obviously Tony Wrestler wants to win, Bud's going to want to win, um, and the impetus would be you know if, if Paul leaves to replace him a la what they did with Al Horford to uh, get, the, get the quick fix and sign Dwight Howard. Um, I understood why they did it if, if they wanted to win at the time, but in the same breath, uh, the team was worse, and they and then they locked themselves into a three-year contract with a guy who's going to be declining. If you have Paul Millsap and they had that same you had that same problem, um, you could try to replace him with a big-ticket item. Uh, the Sort of the famous guy would be Blake Griffin, who I think is actually a little bit worse than Paul right now and uh, obviously more injury-prone. Um, that would be the, the best way to do it if you wanted to make the big splash, but aside from that, 
and that seems kind of unlikely considering he, he, he could definitely resign in Los Angeles. There are some free agents that are intriguing, but nobody as good as Paul Millsap was last year. And uh, for me, I'm on record. I'll say it again here just for clarity's sake. I'm on record as I would let Paul go. I would try to get rid of Dwight uh, and or Kent, but really I would focus on Dwight as the guy who I would want to get rid of moving forward and sort of go into a rebuild mode. It doesn't mean you'd have to you know, tank or bottom out. You can sign, you, you can sign responsible contracts moving forward. Um, have, have the summer be a spot where you're looking for you know, younger guys who fit your timeline, who could um, potentially fit with you long-term, sign responsible deals, a la what Danny Ferry did. Uh, that was one of the best things that Danny Ferry did was just not sign any bad contracts ever. And that was one of his big things, and it, it ended up working out very, very well, obviously, for a little bit of a time there. So I would be looking for that kind of thing. Uh, definitely, if you can get Paul and Dwight off the roster, um, the team probably isn't going to make the playoffs next year unless you do some uh, some big-time jumps from a couple of other guys. But you'd be a respectable product. You wouldn't bottom out. You could focus on development for a year and then get back into things a year from now. Um, but, if that, but if that doesn't happen, uh, if they want to, uh, if Paul walks away um, by his choice, because it seems as though the Hawks are going to do the full-court press to keep him, if he walks away, if he walks away on his choice, um, you know, my guess would be the Hawks would pivot more towards trying to win now I would really not like that move at all, but uh, you know that's kind of the debate here. So in the end, I'm I'm I don't want to say that I don't want to sign Paul Mosap because it's just, it's just weird to say as one of the biggest Paul Mosap fans there is, but it, the contract's going to be bad, and I, I would just avoid it. That's just me. Um, but if they do it, there are ways to do to uh, do it resp- more responsibly. You know that contract in a vacuum will be a bad one, but if they can move off of Dwight and get a little bit younger elsewhere and just have Paul as your one huge contract, obviously Kent Bazemore is handsomely paid as well. But if you could get get off of Dwight, you still have some flexibility and you, 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 you could play a more conducive style, play a little bit faster, a little bit smaller, a little bit more bud ball, quote unquote, from the way that it used to play. And you could probably get back to your roots and be a better basketball team while still only having that one bad contract in the middle. Whereas if you have Dwight and Paul making a combined, you know, 60 million a year for the next two years, you can't really do anything else. And you're very, very old in the front court. So I know I've gone long here, but uh, Paul Millsap, there's a reason why I did his uh, his by itself. It's because there's so many uh, sort of offshoots here. It's not all about Paul. Obviously, there are other decisions that have to be made. But in the end, the big domino that has to fall one way or the other is if the Hawks are to sign Paul Millsap. I, I do think if they offer him the five-year max contract, he's probably going to sign it because that's the most, that's the most money he's ever gotten in his career by a, lo- by a large stretch. He's taken discounts on his last two deals. And if you're 32 years old and you can sign for five years and $205 million, you absolutely should do that. Um, you know, it's one thing if Paul has an opportunity to go out, go and win a title somewhere, but there really isn't that obvious place for him to go ring chase, quote unquote. I mean, even at a high salary, you know, aside from Boston, there really aren't a lot of teams that have cap space that are going to be actual contenders. And um, I don't think Boston's going to be going to be prioritizing Paul as a free agent because he's a little bit older. Uh, you know, getting the band back together with uh, Alan Paul would be a little bit of uh, an, an interesting thing for Hawks fans that don't like the Celtics. But you know, that's the only that's the only team that has cap space and title aspirations, and I just can't imagine that being a huge fit. So it might come down to Paul being willing to take a massive pay cut. Um, somewhere else and to probably not even go ring chasing uh, unless the Hawks just don't offer the deal that I think they're going to offer and that wrestlers kind of said that they're going to offer. But in the end, I think the most likely scenario is that you know they pay up and uh, whether it's the full max or not, it's sort of the big thing for me. If they can get Paul to sign for you know five years and $180 million, something like that, that's still a lot of money. It's still a bad contract, but it would save them a lot on the, on the end of it. Um, anything less than that, if they, could get, if they could somehow get Paul to sign for four years, that'd be fantastic. And, and the Hawks can offer more money than anybody else over four years as well. So if they just said, look, Paul, we know you can't get more than four years. 
Um, we're going to give you four year, the four-year max contract, which is you know somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 160 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot more money than he was going to be able to make elsewhere. And uh, you know maybe maybe that's enough. And that's probably the best case scenario if you're someone who wants to sign Paul is to get him for only four instead of five years. But he's not going to sign for less than that. And we'll see what happens moving forward. Uh, all that to say, I know I'm long here, so thanks for, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, next week we'll be back with a couple of guests, actually, which should be a lot of fun. And uh, until then, please stay tuned to the podcast, subscribe, do all those fun things, enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.